Our text for this morning is Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 20. But I do just want to say that as we talk about this text, 8 through 20, I want to begin in sort of an unusual way. I want to begin by taking a look at the last verse. Take a look at verse 20, and then we'll come back and think about what came before it. Acts chapter 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. I don't think there's any way you can describe that other than be a great revival, a great outpouring of God's spirit, a great work that God did. Um, You could call it a radical revival. I hope that word revival isn't too archaic in the eyes or in the ears of some of you because um, it refers to just a mighty time of God's work, a time of unusual advance in the kingdom of God. And what we have described for us in verse 20 really centers that work around the word of God. I mean, when we say that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed, we mean that that people were meeting God in his word, that God was encountering people through the word that was preached and read and understood. We, We mean that people were being transformed by the renewing of their mind, and that there was a transformation work going on by the word of God. We mean that people were, were becoming more honoring to God with their lives. We mean that people were becoming stronger against temptation. We mean that people were <clears throat> affecting the lives of other people around them. I, I like how Jesus put it. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 8, verse 31, where he said, um, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So it was a real work of discipleship going on in this time where it says in verse 20, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now, it's speaking of God's work in a city called Ephesus. But what led up to what God was doing there in Ephesus, I think we see four specific markers in verses 8 through 20. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning in our text, verses 8 through 20, these four specific markers. And, and here they are. First of all, we see that there was a real dedication to teaching God's word. Number two, I think you could see that there were unusual miracles happening. Number three, there was the reality of the spiritual battle. And number four, there was radical discipleship shown by renunciation. So what I want to do just in the time laid out before me is sort of tease all of that out, those four things. Now, I don't mean to say that that's an exhaustive list or that all of those four things are always present or that they cause radical revival. I'm just trying to say that they often happen in a season when the work of God's kingdom is advancing very rapidly. So let's take a look at that first one where we just called that there was a real dedication to teaching God's word. Check it out here, verses 8, 9, and 10, where we read, And he, now the he there would be the Apostle Paul, he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Well, verse 8 tells us something that we're not surprised by at all. Verse 8 tells us that Paul did his normal custom of coming into a city and teaching in the synagogue for as long as they would have him in the synagogue. Paul did that again and again. 
And so he had done it previously in other cities. Now he comes to the city of Ephesus. And when he comes to the city of Ephesus, even though he had visited before and spoken to the synagogue there before, they wanted him again. So he goes. And he speaks to the Jewish people there at the synagogue. And he speaks to the Greek visitors there at the synagogue. And he's really persuading him. For three months, he goes there every Sabbath and speaks at the synagogue. And he spoke boldly, it says in verse 8, for three months. He had an extended time of preaching and ministry there in the synagogue. But after those three months, some of the members of the synagogue didn't like what Paul was doing and they kicked him out. So did Paul stop his ministry? Not by any means. He found a rented hall, the place called the School of Tyrannus, which apparently was some kind of school or something. By the way, that guy's named Tyrannus. When you're naming your teacher tyrant, that's what it means, Tyrannus. That must have been a tough dude who was the teacher of that school. The school of Tyrannus there rented it and let's take this building and let's use it and we'll teach. And it says there in our text that he did that every day, daily it says, and it says that he did it for two years. Now here's what's fascinating to me about it. One ancient, though not inspired writing, tells us, and so we can't make this 100% certain, but why not? And it's probably true enough. It tells us that Paul did this work in the school of Tyrannus from 11 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. That's five hours a day. Five hours a day, Paul taught the Ephesian disciples there in the school of Tyrannus. And how often did he do it? Daily, which would imply to us six days a week. They probably took the Sabbath off. Six days a week. All the time he was doing it. Six days a week for two years. Paul invested thousands of hours of teaching the Ephesian disciples. This was such a well-taught group. And Paul was able to stay there not just for a few weeks, as was his pattern in other places where they would kick him out of town after a few weeks. He was able to stay there for two whole years. And this made the Ephesian church so strong and so effective in reaching out to the community around them. I mean, look at that in verse 10. It says, It continued for two years, so much so, that the word of God got out to all who dwelt in Asia. Now, how could that possibly happen? Do you think everybody who dwelt in that Asia... By the way, when it says Asia, it's not talking about China and India and such like that. It's talking about the Roman province of Asia Minor. So that region, that specific area. It says the word of God got out to all of those people. I want you to think about that. Do you think all those people made their way through the school of Tyrannus to hear Paul preach? No. How did the word of God get out? Because Paul taught people in the school of Tyrannus and those people went out into the community. They went out in their neighborhoods. They went out at their workplaces. They went out among the people that they associated with and took the word with them wherever they went. And ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly how God wants the work of God to go on here in this congregation. Look, I think it's wonderful that you come here and that God ministers to you and God teaches you and God guides you and God heals you and God blesses your life and God transforms you. All that's good and it's wonderful. But it's expected that you're going to take the work of God that he does in your life and take it out into the places where we can never go, but where you can go. I mean, you live you live in that neighborhood. You work in that environment. You're around those people at your school, whatever the situation. It's a beautiful, beautiful example of Paul pouring into people and those people going out and the effective work just simply happening. As Paul would later say in the letter that he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, that Christians would be equipped to do the work of ministry and that they would go out. All of this speaks of the tremendous dedication that Paul had to teaching God's Word. And we see that. And so it's no surprise 
that this tremendous dedication to teaching God's word was connected with this radical season of revival there in Ephesus. He consciously invested the majority of his time and attention to doing just that. I mean, being rooted in God's word. Friends, that's not in the entire Christian life. The entire Christian life isn't about the Bible and reading it and understanding it. But listen, everything in the Christian life is built upon that foundation. And so Paul understood this. He invested these two years, hours every day teaching in the school of Tyrannus. He was dedicated to the word of God. Now, let's take a look at the second aspect, beginning at verse 11. And this one's weird. Are you ready for some weirdness? <coughs> All right. The Bible's weird sometimes. Verse 11. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the disciples left them, and the evil spirits went out, excuse me, and the diseases left them. It made no sense to say disciples. And the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Now, did you see that at verse 11? I love that phrase that Luke uses. He uses the phrase, unusual miracles. Friends, why do you even say unusual miracles? Isn't every miracle unusual? I mean, a miracle is a miracle, for heaven's sake. No, but Luke's saying these are extra special, unusual miracles. These were examples of God working in a way, not just miraculous, but but miraculous in a way that you wouldn't normally expect. And what was happening here was handkerchiefs or aprons. Those aprons were literally like sweatbands that Paul would wear around him as he worked. Because before Paul did his work in the day at the school of Tyrannus, and after he did his work at the day at the school of Tyrannus, he would do his work of making leather goods and selling them that. He supported himself. Anyway... What they would do is they would take those handkerchiefs or aprons from Paul and they would lay them on a sick person or they would lay them on a person who was demon-possessed and that person would become free, that person would become healed. We're not told that it happened every time. We're not told that. We're not told that it happened for an extended period, but at least for some period of time this was happening. And Luke notes it as being an unusual miracle. Now can I just say, because Luke calls this an unusual miracle, we can say that it wasn't normal for God to do that. And we don't even know exactly how this worked. Although I do remember one thing from the scriptures, don't you? Don't you remember when that woman came to Jesus and touched the hem of his garment? Do you remember that? The woman came to Jesus, she touched the hem of her garment, and immediately she was healed. And friends, we don't believe that there was like magic power in the clothing of Jesus, right? That everybody who touched his clothing was instantly healed or blessed or whatever. No, but what happened when that woman touched the hem of his garment was she was convinced that as soon as she did that, she she almost gave herself the permission to have the faith to be healed. And I believe the same thing very well could have been happening with these handkerchiefs or aprons that Paul had. People were using it as just sort of a trigger point, a focus point for their faith in God. And it was their faith in God that received it, not some magic power emanating from the sweatbands of the Apostle Paul. But no, but their faith in God. And as they put their faith in the living God, God did great things. You can imagine this happening at first almost by accident. Perhaps a person who needed healing took a handkerchief from Paul in a very superstitious manner and they were healed. But then it became a pattern that other people imitated. And as we're going to see, sometimes the Ephesian believers came from backgrounds that were very superstitious. Can I just tell you something? Sometimes I thank God 
that he stoops down low to minister to us even with our crude superstitions. Now, this never means that God is pleased by our superstitions, but that he may overlook them in order to meet a need. Sometimes I look at strange phenomenon that God uh, seems to does it. God heals a person is strange. I, I think of some of the some of the great sort of classic healing. Do, do you ever see videos of Catherine Coleman? Good heavens, what a strange, extravagant woman, right? Look, look those up on YouTube or something like. Look up Catherine Coleman, strange, extravagant woman. Nevertheless, God used her. Now, did God use her because she was strange? No. But, you know, God sometimes uses strange people. We're seeing that on Wednesday nights with the life of Samson, right? It doesn't justify the strangeness. It doesn't excuse the strangeness. But sometimes God just says, look, I'm going to do something bigger than anybody's expectation. I'll work what might be known as an unusual miracle. But please notice, verse 11 says that God worked unusual miracles. Again, you could translate that phrase, miracles not of the ordinary kind. Even if somebody should expect miracles, these were the unexpected kind of miracles. You shouldn't expect that God would move this way all the time. And God worked them by the hands of Paul. God worked them. It wasn't Paul's work. I can imagine just Paul standing back and saying, wow, this is crazy, isn't it? Look at what God's doing. Who can explain this? I'll tell you what, the last thing in the world Paul did was sort of sell those handkerchiefs or sweatbands, right? Have you ever seen those from an evangelist or something? Oh boy, we're not even going there with that. But let me say this. This is oftentimes a mark of when God is really moving. God delights in doing things in new and in different ways. Therefore, let me just sort of lay out a principle for you. We receive whatever is proven to be from the hand of God. But we pursue... Only that which we have a biblical pattern for. I mean, some person says, hey, God did this. Look at what God did. Did God do it or not do it? Was it man? Was it God? Was it the devil? I don't know. By the way, did you know a long time ago, I freed myself from the obligation of having to explain all spiritual phenomena. (laughs) Sometimes weird things happen. And you know what I just say? I say, That's weird. (laughs) Well, was it the Lord? Was it the devil? Was it man? I don't know. That's weird. I mean, why, why do I have to explain everything, right? Okay, but look, the important thing is to look at what happens with life transformation. You see, when God is moving, unusual things happen. And it may be very difficult to tell if the unusual things comes from God or comes from man or sometimes even from Satan himself. That's why it can be wise not to pursue such strange phenomenon, but to always keep a focus on the fruit that the phenomenon should produce. It's strange and sometimes frightening when Christians are out seeking after strange phenomena. No, I agree sometimes strange phenomena will happen, but that's an entirely different thing than seeking after it. Sometimes it's said like this, and if you've heard this one before, I think it's worth it for you to hear it again. It's not how high you bounce, it's how straight you walk when you come down. So did you bounce high with some amazing phenomena? Well, great, praise the Lord. Okay, great. If it had good fruit in your life, wonderful. 
Let's see if it makes you contribute to having a walk that's holy and glorifying God and, 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 and promoting of, of God's great work in your life. You see, we're not against bouncing high, but without walking straight, it doesn't really matter very much. And what I like most is the unusual works, the unusual miracles that God may do connected with real life transformation. Where God just does mind-blowing things in the lives of people because he's working so deeply to transform lives. I never forget hearing stories about this and reading the stories. For example, during the, the, the 1904 Great Welsh Revival, an amazing period of God's outpouring of his spirit upon this region of Wales. I mean, an amazing number of people came to Christ in just over a few month time. And it was just a, a remarkable time of transformation. I mean, the police literally didn't have anything to do. The, the police had to stop doing their job of trying to fight crime because there was no crime in these communities. And it said that police just became concerned with crowd control for churches because that's all they were doing. Uh, bars were shut down. Uh, gambling dens were uh, houses of ill repute over. I, I mean, the, things were changed in society in a radical way. And yet they discovered there was one place where there was ill effect that you might not notice. There was one place where production in the coal mines decreased for a period of time. During the height of the revival, there was a decrease in the production of the coal mines. You say, well, what did that have to do? Well, they sort of trace it out as to what actually happened. You see, they used these little ponies to, to pull up the coal carts up from the mines. And those ponies, you could imagine those ponies under the, you know, guidance or whatever you would call it from these tough Welsh coal miners, those ponies heard nothing but a string of constant profanity and cursing 24 hours a day when they were doing their work. That's all those ponies heard. Well, when all these Welsh coal miners got converted, they didn't swear anymore, and the ponies couldn't understand them when they were telling them what to do. And for that reason, the production in the coal mines went down for a period of time until the ponies learned how to, you know, hear non-profane speech. Another account during another outpouring of great work of God in a shipyard. So many shipyard workers were being saved. And when these men were saved, their consciences were pricked. They said, no, we, I, I've been stealing tools from the shipyard and I've been taking them home. I've got to bring them back to the shipyard. So many men got saved. So many men returned tools to the shipyard. But the shipyard didn't have room to keep them all. They actually had to post signs. Okay, don't bring back any more tools. Those are the kind of unusual miracles that excite me the most. If you want to talk about this strange phenomenon, that strange, well, whatever, okay? But look, transformed lives in these unusual, powerful ways. That's what we delight in most of all. And that was a real sign of radical revival. All right, here's the third thing, starting at verse 13. Okay, more weirdness, to be honest, verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. You got the movie running in your head on this one? That's crazy, isn't it? Well, look, 
you know that the Bible teaches us, and I just want to emphasize, the Bible teaches us of the reality of spiritual enemies, that there are demons in this world. And I, it's kind of funny because I could just imagine there's somebody sitting here, there may be several people here in this room, you go, that's the craziest thing ever. What, are we back in the Middle Ages? Look, all I can tell you is this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that there are angelic beings, that there are good angels, that there are evil angels, that the, the demonic spirits are real. And, and, and that, that sometimes they possess a person. Sometimes they so overwhelm an individual's personality and will that that person to some degree or another could said to be possessed by that demon. And we know that Jesus Christ has the power to free people who are possessed by demons. Well, listen, this phenomenon of demon possession, it was sought to be addressed not only by Jesus, not only by the disciples in the early church, but there were other, there were Jewish exorcists, right? And they would seek to, to cast demons out of people, and they almost always did it with superstition and formulaic ways. But they, they did their work, and they tried to cast out these demons. And so verse 13 tells us, that some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to cast out these demons. And did you notice what they said there in verse 13? We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. You see, the Jewish exorcists tried to cast the demon out or take the authority over them when they had no connection with Jesus. They said, you know, this Paul does this in the name of Jesus. Well, we'll do it in the name of Jesus whom this Paul preaches. Well, they only knew that Jesus was the God of Paul, not that Jesus was their own God. You could say this, that the sons of Siva did not have the right to use the name of Jesus because they had no real personal connection with him. If you excuse me, I'm going to speak with you very frankly. It might be more frank than you're used to hearing. But I, I, I deal with things of heaven and hell and eternity. So I, I feel I'm obligated to speak to you very frankly. There are many people. There are many churchgoers. Who will perish in hell. Because they have no personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I, I may be talking to some people such as that right here, right now. You see, it's not enough for you just to know the Jesus whom the pastor preaches. It's not enough for you to know the Jesus that your mother believed in or your sainted grandmother or grandfather. It's not enough for you just to know the Jesus that your spouse believes in. You've got to do your business with Jesus Christ directly. You've got to look at Jesus hanging on the cross. And you need to understand that whatever shame your sin deserves, whatever guilt your sin deserves, whatever penalty or punishment that your sin deserves, that it was put upon Jesus on the cross. And he bore it for you. Not not only for your grandmother, not only for the preacher, not only for your spouse, but for you. And you must put your faith in Jesus directly. You you can't justify yourself before God on that day and say, you know, my wife really had a great relationship with you, Jesus. 
You know, I don't know, the pastor seemed to believe it pretty strong. What about you? And again, I, I, well, I don't apologize. It's, it's what I'm called here to do. Uh, the calling of my life is to speak to men and women about serious subjects such as this. Heaven and hell, for your life and the lives of people that you know and love, it hangs in the balance on these very things. We don't want to be in the situation. Verse 15, the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Now, apparently, the evil spirit knew exactly who Jesus was and knew who Paul was, but they didn't know who the seven sons of Siva were. Well, I know that's talking about demons, but I don't want to hear it from God on that day. I know Jesus. I know Ingalil. Well, who are you? I don't want that to be said. Verse 16 tells us that the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them. See, all this would, would make a mighty impression. And verse 17 will tell us that it did make a mighty impression on people. It tells us the spiritual things are real. The spiritual warfare is real. It's not to be trifled with. There is a real battle in the lives of people. And sometimes that battle is very real to us. It's right there in front of our face. Other times, we walk through life blind to this battle. But aren't we grateful that sometimes God just wakes us up and shows us the reality of the battle? And sometimes those battles are fought in little things. Sometimes they're fought in great things. I'll tell you about a little battle just in my life. For whatever reason, this year, I've been just... just beset by minor illnesses right around Sunday. <laughs> Yesterday afternoon, I, there I am, which is we, a lovely morning with things, a little rough doing things to come on. In the afternoon, I start feeling feverish. I start feeling my throat swell up. It's like, oh, great. Tomorrow, man, I got, I, this is such a great text. I got to preach on it tomorrow. How can I not preach? They go, oh, man, am I going to make it? Just think, but as much as anything, Ingalo and I would just look at each other, well, look at what the devil's trying to do again. And I, I'm not trying to eliminate that there are, there are the biological causes and all the rest. I'm not trying to say that this specific sickness was sent by Satan or whatever. Well, it gets, you know, I know that, that Satan would love to exploit it. Would love to use it to discourage me. Say, David, your voice is so weak, why even bother? David, you don't feel good, why even bother? Just take the day off, don't worry about it. It just sort of a holy indignation rises up and Ingolo and I, we pray and go, no. No, we're just going to do it. I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I feel weak. His strength is perfected in my weakness. It's just not all about how strong I feel or how good I feel. Well, I got wonderful command of my voice this morning. Who cares? It's the strength of God. That's what we want to see at work. But sometimes the veil gets ripped back a little bit or a lot. We see the reality of the spiritual battle. That's exactly what was happening here. And friends, that's something that contributes to real, real revival, is to see the reality of the spiritual battle happening everywhere. Let's take a look at the last aspect here, starting at verse 17. Just as I drink my tea. <laughs> This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, 
And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Verse 17 tells us that when the news about what happened with the seven sons of Siva got known throughout the whole region, people were confronted. They knew, man, this is real. The, 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 the realm of God and the realm of demons that oppose his work, it's real. It's not something we can play around with. And so the incident with the sons of Siva impressed people with the reality of the demonic realm and it made them fear the Lord and the demonic world, both in healthy ways, I believe. And therefore, verse 17 tells us that the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And what happened, verse 18? Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. You see, apparently, before the sons of Siva incident, many believers did not know that they were involved in the demonic. They had things in their home. They had books. They had parchments. They had amulets. They had statues, whatever it would be back in the ancient world. They had these things, and they didn't really understand that these things are demonic, and I should have nothing to do with them as a Christian. But the sons of Siva incident made them say, no, I've got to put this thing away. And so what did they They came confessing. They came telling their deeds. Yes, I've had this connection with with astrology. Yes, I've had this connection with with demonic things. I want to renounce it now. I want to get rid of it. Verse 19 tells us that many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. This whole Sons of Siva incident prompted Christians to renounce any remaining connection to the demonic world. They renounced these, these connections by confessing and by burning their magic books, they, they disregarded whatever value they had. They said, well, I've got a book, I don't know exactly, it's a, a book of sorceries or spells. Well, that book's worth a lot of money. Hey, uh, well, I don't want to use it anymore. I'm a Christian. I'll sell it. What do you mean sell it? That, that book's going to go to somebody else and be a curse in their life. That book's going to enslave somebody else. You should destroy that book. And that's what the Christian said. No, we're just going to destroy this such. So they came, they came confessing, they came telling their needs, and they got rid of these books full of magic charms, the amulets, the incantations, and they got rid of it all, and it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. It's a little hard to figure out how much that is. I've heard estimates anywhere from $1 million to $5 million. That's a lot of money. You say, oh my gosh, how could they afford to lose that much money? Friends, how could they afford not to? Could you, you understand the blessing that came into the lives of their belief, in their, in their Christian lives, when under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they renounced certain things that they had allowed in their lives before? And I wonder about this. I know that Christians must renounce and remove books and images and computer files or statutes or charms, or games, or whatever they have that might be connected with demonic spirits. And that they should get rid of them in a way that they're of no use to other people. I know this. Although I do have to say, and I'll just be very upfront with you. I read this text, and I can understand how somebody could read this text and get very nervous. Because the whole idea of book burning scares me. Doesn't it scare you? I mean, book burning throughout history has been a very bad thing. 
Book burning has, has been something that usually advanced great evil in history. Yet what happened here in Ephesus, as recorded in Acts chapter 19, is something completely different. What happened here in Ephesus was people responding voluntarily. This isn't the government burning somebody's books. No. These are individuals. And by the way, individuals purely voluntary. The church wasn't even compelling them to do it. Look at what it says there in verse 19. It says, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together. Not all of them, but many of them. There was no compulsion. If the Holy Spirit's moving on your heart to do it, then great, you should do it and destroy these things. But we're not going to make a law. We're going to trust the, the Holy Spirit's work in your very own life. And so there's a huge difference, right, between some of the ugly book-burning incidents that history has seen and what happened here in Ephesus, because this was purely voluntary. The Christian comes and says, you know what, this has been a disaster in my life. This has brought a curse into my life. This has been something terrible. I want to destroy it. I say, hallelujah. If the government wants to come in and burn the books, I say, no, stop, don't burn anything. But when individual Christians do it by their own volition, that's a glorious thing. What it is, is it's a form of renunciation. I've been thinking about that word. I've been thinking about that word, renunciation. I think about how our culture is so self-indulgent. And just kind of the lesson is, whatever you want, you get. And I think, what do we renounce for Jesus Christ? Maybe I'll put the question to you. Maybe I'll phrase it another way, a little more provocatively. What do you renounce for Jesus Christ? Some privilege, some pleasure, something that might be totally good for the person sitting next to you. But Jesus Christ would have you renounce it. I believe spread across this whole room, even as I say that, I believe as soon as I say those words, the Holy Spirit speaking to some hearts, saying, I want you to give this up for me. And instantly you start making a case against it. Well, no, Lord, that thing in itself isn't sinful. Give it up for me, Jesus says. Well, no, Lord, other people enjoy that same thing and it's just fine for them. Give it up for me, Jesus says. Well, it was fine in my life before. Give it up for me, Jesus says. You know, I, I, I wouldn't have anybody do any such thing under legalism. I wouldn't have anybody do any such thing under manipulation or coercion. But I, I would say two things. I would say, listen to the Spirit, right? But I would phrase it another way. Listen to the Spirit. If he's telling you to renounce it, then renounce it. Do do you think he's telling you to renounce it to make your life worse? No, only better, only more blessed, only more filled with the glory and the touch of God. Friends, I think that one of the reasons why we don't see a greater outpouring of God's work I'd really love it to be said, verse 20 again. The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. I don't know if that's ever going to happen without, without some spirit of renunciation of some things in our midst. I know it runs up against our culture that tells us that we should have everything we want. But I think God has a different way, a better way for you and for I. So those four things, just to mention them. Dedication to teaching God's word. Unusual miracles understood the right way, of course. The reality of spiritual battle. And finally, radical discipleship shown by renunciation.
These are some hallmarks of radical works of God, radical revival. May it be so among us. Father, I thank you that you've given me the voice to make it through this morning. But Lord, I I pray now that um, you would do such a deep work in the heart of your people. I think now, Lord, of the next part of our service. And how you've got a, a deep work by your spirit to do in their hearts, in their minds, in their lives. So do it, Jesus. Lord, and I, I pray especially that you would speak to individual hearts that need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. I pray that you'd speak to hearts that need to renounce something that you're speaking to them about. Do it, Lord. We, we open up our hearts, Lord. We lay our souls down before you. Do this work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.